0: Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyas Jiwa. Imagine that you are 19 years old and involved in an accident in which you lose all but one of your arms. My guest on the podcast today was involved in just such an accident. He went on to study medicine and has become one of the most respected physicians in the United States. In this podcast, he talks about that accident and how he now turns up for his patients in a way that also feels right. For himself. Vijay, you're very welcome to the show. You've lost three of your limbs, and I wanted to talk about that, if you don't mind, and tell us the story of how that happened.
1: Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me, Moyas. I love this opportunity to talk about all sorts of important things together. Yeah, for me, so much of my own professional journey, but also personal one, began when I was 19 and had a big brush with death. I was in college, sophomore year in college. and Some friends of mine and I were just horsing around one night, and we decided to climb a parked commuter train it was just sitting there. So I scurried up on top of the train, and it's the kind of train where the power source is, is, is overhead. And so when I stood up, I came close enough to the power source that the electricity arced to my metal watch that was on my left wrist and that was it. I, it was a big explosion and serious burns about 30 plus percent of my body and ended up losing, as you mentioned, both legs below the knee and my left arm below the elbow. And so that, that sprung me into the world of disability. That sprung me into the world of healthcare, both its incredible powers and also its incredible lackings. And it also brought me very much more intimate with my own demise with my own death and death became less abstract, more real for me. And so this w- was a, a monumental experience for me and in, in the life of, in, in my life uh, and a real pivot moment in so many ways. And also interestingly, I mean we could talk about any of this, but also also a through line. in some ways my life changed radically and in other ways it didn't and that was all interesting for me to explore. And ultimately it led to my choosing healthcare as a profession. Again, I had been saved by this thing called healthcare and had been at the mercy of and completely dependent upon and in love with nurses, techs, you know, the whole staff of this burn unit that that saved my life. So I was I was in touch with all the strengths of this system, but I was also very, very aware of its shortcomings. And I had been for a while. I grew up around disability. My mother had polio and post-polio syndrome, and so my whole life I've been around disability. And it was so it was very interesting for me to move from a my life as a sort of informal caregiver with my mom to becoming disabled myself. And so all those transitions, all those lessons learned, pointed me to a career in medicine, and then, which I was very you know happily I was I was one I was I was grateful to stumble into that and. But deep in a medical school, I was going to actually drop out of it. I had become disillusioned with the, the, the gap between the practice of medicine and the ideals of medicine. But just in the nick of time, I stumbled onto palliative care when I was doing my internship and uh, fell in love instant, instantly with it and repurposed my, my thinking and, and beeline for, for palliative medicine and uh, have not looked back.
0: Fantastic. And your patients are extraordinarily lucky that you didn't look back. I wanted to take Mm. up this idea of the gaps between medicine and the practice of medicine. What were those Mm. that you, as a a young, impressionable doctor, noticed?
1: Well, I think there are a couple of ways to look at it. I think overarchingly, it was the realization, the assumption going in was that anyone attracted to healthcare and devoting so much time and energy to studying medicine, nursing, social worker, you name it, any of these allied professions but especially medicine, that I, I had assumed a great virtue that that it was a service business, mm-hmm. that it was devoted to the care of fellow human beings. And the, I think the central disillusionment was that to, was to realize that, the, yes, the patient's experience was important in the mix, but it very often felt far from the main focus. Very often, the, the practice of medicine could feel pretty demeaning and demoralizing to the patient uh, rather than honoring. And that I'd watched as my colleagues, as we homogenized patients, as we referred to them by their disease, as we dehumanized our patients. And I've come to realize why we do that. It's complicated. But that was the main thing, that was the main, that's a way of describing the gap that you just referenced was this idea that we were bound to serve our patients and their families, when in fact that often could feel like pretty far down the list of what we were doing.
0: Yes, I can see that. And I want to explore that even further, because so many of us are still a part of the system of healthcare, whether it's in the United States or whether it's anywhere else in the world. It isn't much different, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. It still dehumanizes people, in some instances, in many instances. Mm -hmm. Yet we remain a part of that system. Mm-hmm. Is that an indictment of us, or is it that we somehow manage to find a way to express ourselves in a way that fixes it somehow?
1: Well, you know that's a great question, Moya. because I think I think part of the answer is is, is human nature, and, and human nature, especially attracted to the ambitions of something like medicine, is about striving. You know that we are always we're future oriented beasts we move towards things and i think part of the appeal in some ways and for me very nakedly part of the appeal for going into medicine was that it was that it needed help was that it was problematic as it currently set that that it aspired the, the i needed to believe that it aspired to be otherwise but i wasn't shocked that there was a gap i wasn't shocked that there needed to be improvements but in some ways the need for improvement Pricks that part of a, of me and others that are striving to participate in change and becoming, and that I think it's at our human nature. So in in some ways, the idea that medicine needs help, the healthcare needs help as a system, is mobilizes is is part of the engagement, and that I or you or any of us could feel like we're participating in in benevolent change and something getting better, whether it's the lives of our patients or it's the system in which we're laboring. Either way, I think it's a, there's some appeal to the fact that it needs help. If I think about what gets me out of bed in the morning, part of it has been, gosh, I need to get out of bed in the morning so that I can go work on the system that we all know could be better, should be better. And, and the, that, that mobilizes energy in me to some degree. Now, it can certainly tip over across the line and become demoralizing and disempowering and flattening. And I, among many others, bounce to and fro over that line of being inspired by this mess versus being crushed by this mess. And I can say, I I do both often.
0: Yeah, I get that. And when I talk to so many of our guests on this show, I'm astonished that some people seem to get almost to the end of their career and they're not cynical. And I'm always tempted Mm -hmm. to ask, why aren't you cynical? So BJ, Mm -hmm. why aren't you cynical? (laughs)
1: what a beautiful question well for starters i'm not always sure that i'm not but to the degree to which i'm not and i do believe i'm not wholly cynical there are moments you know but the degree to which i'm not has something to do with what we were just describing in a way of understanding the complexities on some level of human nature and our relationship to our own inventions, the things we create, whether it's a healthcare system or anything else. And that these are continual works in progress. And that just if I reflect on my own daily life and not yanked down by anybody else, but me just playing out my inner life, playing myself out, I can, I've watched myself do harm. I've watched myself with good intentions create messes. I've watched myself screw up even when I really wasn't trying so hard to do the opposite. So I suppose an answer to your question is compassion. Compassion for realizing that no system and no person is ever really done, that it's always a work in progress. And so in a way, I suppose the anti-cynical force here is feeling for all these mistakes and seeing yourself in these mistakes as well as these potentials for triumph and betterment. So if I can if I can see myself reflected in all of these, of all the world's ills as well as their triumphs, I feel part of it. I feel engaged. And my own work internally and externally has to do with participating in something being better than you found it. And I think that's a pretty dang good legacy for anyone to shoot for in this life. If we could find a way to leave things a smidge better than we found them. And I realize even as I say that how hard that is, how many forces in daily life can pull us out of that mode. But there it is. That's where I sit. So I suppose, in a word, the answer to your question is compassion.
0: My comment to that would be, and you're welcome to challenge this, is that you've had a conversation with death, a very personal conversation with death. Do you think that plays a part in how you're now showing up in the world?
1: Absolutely, it does. So part of this context for that compassion is A, that we're that we're all works in progress, like I mentioned. That suffering, that we suffer and create suffering even when we intend to do the opposite. That that's all normal. And that we die. That the book, that our lives, the life of an, of an individual has bookends to it. And that we're all, at the end of the day, all just trying our best to get through the day and not make too much of a mess and maybe make things a little bit better. All because that, that is contextualized by the fact that our time ends. And that we're all sort of doing what we can, while we can, and it will almost, by some measure, always fall short, you know, by some measure. And that that's not, that's just normal life. That is the way it is. Death, in my relationship with it, has taught me a lot about the idea of failure, that failure it depends how you look at it. You know, was it? Did I fail? Am I less? Did I fail by getting in that accident? Am I less human? Was my punishment to be less, less of a human being because I lost all these body parts? Well, no. I I landed firmly in belief to the to the contrary that no, that it's just one mistake. With it, it just happened to have a lot of consequences, and that my value on this world is has nothing to do with me being perfect, but my value in this world rather has something to do with caring and trying. And if I can look myself in the mirror and know that I'm doing those two things, I'm all good. And death, circle back, death is the thing that taught me that. Death taught me that I am going to fall short, that life, if I do it right, will always have me wanting more, looking for more, and that I've got to reconcile the limitations I have in my life as an individual and come to respect those and work within those. And... So this sort of necessity of failing helps me appreciate it and see it for what it is. And, and now, since then, my injuries, I have a much different relationship with failure. I don't mind failing. I see it as that that's just how I learn. That, that's how I get in. That's how I'm staying humble. That's how I get in touch with the world beyond myself. So those are all virtues. And they're brought to me on behalf of by this thing that we otherwise think is the enemy is so hard, so bad, called death. When in fact, the thing I love about death is it welcomes everybody and everything. Nothing escapes its grasp, and therefore you cannot fail death. We are entirely; every piece of us will go that way. And so, with that, armed with that sort of understanding, both of its the shadow side and of its light, that allows that allows me mobilizes me in a daily way to try because I, what have I got to lose? So I'm going to try, right? And at the same time, death teaches me that because this failure, quote unquote, is inevitable, at the end I need to the thing I really need to master too is forgiving myself. And so death does this double thing for me. It musters energy in me to try, and it musters energy in me to forgive myself for falling short. And it's that one two punch that gets me gets me through the day. I'm not sure if that answered your question, Moyez, but that's a quick reflection on it anyway.
0: Yes, it did. I want to talk brass tacks here. When you are in the zone, BJ, Mm -hmm. what is that like? You must have a story of what it feels like when you're in the zone and you're doing what the fact that you cheated death at one point, what that opportunity allowed you to do. That
1: That allowed me to be not less afraid, but less governed by my fear. I could see fear as just this yet another impulse, an essential piece of human being, being human, and something that was normal and natural, and I couldn't control like any other emotion. I, I learned a lot about emotions that the their, their charm is that you can't control them, but you, of course, can control how you respond to them to some degree, your reaction to them to some degree. So when I'm when I'm in the zone, it's where I am feeling everything, but not overly moved by any one thing. I've got a sort of full spectrum perspective going in which everything exists. Everything is welcome in a way. I don't have to squint through some things, not notice other things. It's So the zone for me is the ability to have my eyes wide open and to see everything and to Mm -hmm. not be overly moved or swayed or reactive to it. So the, the fact that's in a way the zone and I can get there with people In a clinical setting, by practice, of course, but the practice so much is really being there for myself and not dividing myself and not shaming parts of myself into submission, but being with all of it. If I can have that kind of big ass, you know, that big, big capacity, if I can have that big capacity for myself, then I can do it with my patients. And the feeling, so that's something of a description of the zone, how I get there. And the feeling, I know I'm in the zone when, I mean, in part you can read it by the um, impact you're having on your patients or their family. You can see them, feel them opening up. You can feel them in a place of safety. You can feel them feeling witnessed. And that's a magical place. And, and I can tell from, so that's when I look at my patients into their eyes. If I see that, I know I'm good. And if I look inward, what I see is nothing but the moment. I am truly in the moment. I suppose that's what we call flow states. I'm not thinking about my next visit or the one before. Time is in its place and not whipping me around. I don't hear any tick-tock of a clock. That's how I know I'm in the zone.
0: I want to share a story with you, which I'd like to hear your comments on this. Uh, This is the story of my brother-in-law who died of lymphoma. So he was a kidney transplant patient who ended up on immunosuppressors and subsequently developed Mm -hmm. an occult lymphoma. Occult, I say, because he developed symptoms in December, went to see several doctors with headaches and flu-like symptoms, Mm -hmm. ended up having the diagnosis of lymphoma. He was only 32. He had two young children. He ended up dying in a Mm -hmm. Dublin teaching hospital, neutropenic and covered in diarrhea, unable to cuddle his daughters, dying. My wife, his sister, had many conversations with his doctor and said, Look, you know, do you really need to carry on with the particular treatment that you're offering him because it's not helping and the man is dying and he's not dying well? And uh, she was told, Well, he's a young man. We need to do everything possible to save his life. And I remember being at his funeral and in the church, they person leading the ceremony saying that, you know, of course that Johnny's now gone to heaven because he suffered so much before he died. And Mm -hmm. I remember feeling very upset by that statement because I thought, he died in an elite hospital in a state that did not give him any dignity. And I was thinking, next time I'm speaking Mm -hmm. to a palliative care physician, I'll ask what they thought of that story.
1: Oh, my friend. You know, a couple thoughts. One is, I share your sense of chafing at that notion that somehow it's sort of, in other words, let's make this person suffer and then let's praise their suffering as somehow a ticket into paradise. I mean, the sin here in this story for me is all the projection of a belief system, of a faith. Of an idea onto fellow human beings that may or may not share that belief. It's a fundamentalist's point of view. And I, for one, think fundamentalism, just about anywhere applied, whether it's religion or political systems, is fundamentally flawed. I think what is a bigger human position, and if there is a God, I will hope that, that God will appreciate this statement, that we are. But there are things that we humans don't get to know, at least not yet in human development. And I think this is just a generally true statement. I think if we ask the most brilliant people that we know, I think one of the common refrains would be they would readily admit all the things they don't know. And that we human beings stand before mysteries all the time. And that's compelling and amazing and wonderful in all sorts of ways and terrible and hard and difficult in others. But this, the, the, the sin of confusing faith or belief with fact uh, is the problem. So, if we're sitting before mystery, we must say, I don't know. It is, that's the nature of mystery. I don't know. I don't get it. That implies there are truths bigger than ourselves, and of course there are. And that, to me, is a is a basic human stance that's a pious stance, that is a faithful stance, that is an honest stance. And so confusing, looking into that same abyss that we all look into, and confusing our beliefs with facts, to me feels like an original sin. And I'm so sorry you had to uh, experience that. Now, if Johnny, if your brother-in-law had said, hey, suffering is meaningful to me. I I know I'm dying, but I, this pain is useful to me. It's going to help me get into the heaven that I believe in. If Johnny, in other words, if Johnny had dictated that behavior, I would feel 180 degrees different about it. I would say, hey, Johnny, okay, pal, it's going to be hard for me to watch, but I'll be here with you. I'm not going to run away. You suffer all that you need to, want to, blah, blah, blah. I'll support you suffering. That was Johnny's right, not the doctor's, not the priest. I just think that's an abominable overreach, and I'm so sorry.
0: Thank you. It has taken us a good 30 years to come to terms with that particular event, but we have, and we've made our peace with it. But I was reflecting that I am myself a part of the healthcare system. I, in fact, trained at the very hospital at which this man died, part of a system (laughs) that allows such things to happen. And I'm wondering what it is that we can do. If, if, If Johnny's death did anything, it made us determined that there will be no more Johnnies in the situation that he found himself in.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, there you go. I mean, this is where these experiences can be so galvanizing, these hardships, these sufferings, your own in this case, can be so galvanizing and clarifying. And just like much my own was in healthcare, and ultimately why I repurposed my job in healthcare was because it was was looking at my own disillusionment and, and doubling down and saying, "Well, great, this disillusionment gives me a clearer view and makes it clear what I, what I what my mission is here." Ultimately, I'm thankful for that suffering. Ultimately, I'm thankful for that challenge. But I think this is where it's very important for us, especially in healthcare, to discern. And I suppose maybe as human beings, not all sufferings created equal. And I, you know, I wouldn't wish a lack of suffering on my worst enemy. That life would be very boring, very flat, and that person would be very lonely. I think suffering is a natural human endeavor. Now, this is where it's so important to distinguish suffering from unnecessary or gratuitous suffering. The stuff we just make up and heap on each other, whether we're shaming each other or while we're supporting people like Johnny in pain in their final moments, whatever it is, when we perpetuate and create suffering ourselves, that is so importantly and critically different from the suffering that just can't be avoided just by virtue of us being human beings with an imagination i mean we can always thanks to our imagination you or i could always imagine a world better than the one we have and this is where i think imagination can be uh crazy making but if with enough support and some clear-eyed view that imagination can allow us to picture a world that we can yank the we can yank ourselves towards like you talked about earlier about the striving So anyway, to circle back, I think the point here is for us as clinicians to be really clear about the suffering that we just can't change, because there, as as providers, our mission is to accompany that person in their suffering, to be there with them, to bear witness. And if that suffering can be changed, if it is gratuitous, then our mission is to mobilize and to intervene and to push back on that. They're two two different muscles, and it all depends what is the source of that suffering and whether that suffering is serving our patient or crushing them. So that's we need to have a much more dynamic relationship with this notion of suffering, if that makes sense.
0: It does, and it's a beautiful way to put it. And I think it probably speaks to my next question, and that's what you say in your amazing TED Talk, which we will put a link with our show notes. You said you don't need palliative care just because you're dying. Mm-hmm. Say something more about that.
1: Well, I don't know if it's true in Australia, and it certainly, but it certainly is true in the U.S., where palliative care, for vexing reasons, has remained has a real PR problem. No one, no one knows what the heck palliative care is. Even people in the health professions, even some people in the palliative care field, have assumed, We we really struggle to define it. In part because of our history, we grew out of the hospice movement. And at least my understanding of in this country, I mean, palliative care or hospice came to the U.S. in the seventies. And then in the 90s, medicine asked itself finally, well, why do we wait till people are dying to surround them with love and to support them and to accept them and to see them and to care about their family, to care about how they feel? Why do we wait till we're dying to provide this very fundamental but very beautiful stance to each other? And so, and then so, palliative care began to grow up around the death moment and march upstream. So if you look at any definition of palliative care, well, you will see there's no mention of death. There's no mention of time. Palliative care is simply the interdisciplinary pursuit of quality of life or the treatment of suffering instead of the treatment of disease. And palliative care doesn't stop simply because you know you're know you no longer fixable. We hang out with you all the way. We go all the way, whether or not you're, you participate in, in our cures or not. So that is what palliative care is, but very few people understand that. Those differences sound a little wonky, not really clear, and everyone could kind of grasp the idea of death and end of life as being you know, a meaningful period of time that otherwise gets short shrift in medicine. So hospice has its place, but palliative care trying to both include end of life while separating itself from end of life is a really tricky rhetorical proposition. So, And then lastly, I would say I think a lot of the confusion is if if you look at a definition of palliative care, pick the World Health Organization's. There, or any of them, you, you know, a normal response might be, "What's the big deal? Isn't isn't this what healthcare is?" Like, I think it's a very reasonable assumption of a layperson to look at a definition of palliative care and be like, "What's the distinction between that and healthcare?" My understanding is, of course, healthcare is supposed to be concerned around your suffering and to help you suffer less. Of course, healthcare is supposed to care about your experience as a patient. But of course, it doesn't. So I think another part of the confusion here is that palliative care smells like it should be just care. But it's telling that we need a subspecialty to mark the importance of these issues. It's telling because it implies that the system in which palliative care sits is wayward, has needs to be reminded of these basics and these fundamentals. So I think part of the confusion here, too, has to do with our moment in time where you have to, to understand palliative care's importance. You have to understand how the rest of the system is broken around these issues, and that's not necessarily common knowledge. So, I think altogether, that's why we really struggle to get across what the heck palliative care is and isn't.
0: BJ, where can people find you? What is your? What are you doing currently? How are you showing up in the world?
1: With a lot of confusion and and mood swings these days, and irritability. You know, I. It's very interesting to me to watch us all in this massive existential crisis. When when you and I and others in the field are are used to dealing with individuals in existential crisis, well, here we all are in that boat. And and it's very hard to reflect on it's, it's very hard to reflect on our struggles when we're in them. So so part of my answer to your question is I'm struggling and moody and weird and bouncing around all day every day. Trying to make sense of what's happening, just like the rest of us. So solidarity in that way, but that's I know not necessarily the answer to the question you're asking. But I just want to confess that sometimes I think the public thinks that some of us, whether it's because we're disabled, in my case, or because we're doctors or whatever else, have special knowledge or special insights. Eh, No, not necessarily. I think the difference is for those of us we just we're maybe a little bit more apt to admit it and not run away. So. Anyway, I think that, confession aside, my work now, since earlier in the year, pre just before COVID, I closed my medical practice at the University of California at UCSF so that I could start my own little thing. And so my own little thing, since COVID, is, and COVID has helped sculpt this further, but I'm starting a little company with my partner, Sonia Dolan. We're starting a little company called Metal Health, M-E-T-T-L-E, so metalhealth.com, and metal... Some of you will know it's it's a beautiful word that's not used enough. It simply re- refers to our sort of inner resolve, our inner strength. And so this is the work for us. We love that name because of my this new job, this business we're setting up, is basically it's a place to get online palliative care support. So you don't need a doctor's referral. you don't need to live in any one particular place. And we're trying to make this kind of care as as accessible as humanly possible. So in this vein, now, through this outlet, I get to to do my work. But in such a way that I'm a little bit outside of the healthcare system. I don't. I'm not becoming people's physician. It's really me working in a in a capacity as a coach or a counselor, and, uh, in part because you know there's enough systems. People have enough doctors. You know, I don't want to compete for their attention. Um, rather, I'd rather take a collaborative stance. And the mental health our, what we do helps people use their existing resources a little bit better, rather than supplanting those resources. So so that's what I'm doing. Online palliative care, counselling and coaching in the form of mentalhealth.com. So come visit us there anytime, please.
0: Fantastic. BJ Miller, we are in awe of the work that you do and the compassion you bring to the world and the lessons that you bring and literally embody for the rest of us. As a 19-year-old, you were spared by death for us. And when many, many years from now, you you greet death again, you will take with you our thanks for all that you're doing. Thank you.
1: Oh, Moyes, you just gave me chills, pal. I could die today. Thank you. That is such a beautiful thing to hear. I really appreciate that. Thank you.
0: The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.